Chapter Thirteen When Knighthood Was in Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. When Knighthood Was in Flower by Charles Major. Chapter Thirteen A Girl's Consent. The treaty had been agreed upon, and as to the international arrangement at least, the marriage of Louis de Valois and Mary Tudor was a settled fact. All it needed was the consent of an eighteen-year-old girl. A small matter, of course, as marriageable women are but commodities in statecraft, and theoretically at least acquiesce in everything their liege lords ordain. Lady Mary's consent had been but theoretical but it was looked upon by every one as amounting to an actual vociferated sonorous yes that is to say by every one but the princess who had no more notion of saying yes than she had of reciting the sanskrit vocabulary from the pillory of smithfield wolsey whose manner was smooth as an otter's coat had been sent to fetch the needed yes but he failed Jane told me about it. Wolsey had gone privately to see the princess, and had thrown out a sort of skirmish line by flattering her beauty, but had found her not in the best humor. "'Yes, yes, my lord of Lincoln, I know how beautiful I am. No one knows better. I know all about my hair, eyes, teeth, eyebrows, and skin. I tell you, I am sick of them.' Don't talk to me about them. It won't help you to get my consent to marry that vile old creature. That is what you have come for, of course. I have been expecting you. Why did not my brother come? I think he was afraid. And to tell you the truth, I was afraid myself, answered Wolsey with a smile. This made Mary smile, too, in spite of herself, and went a long way toward putting her in a good humor. Wolsey continued. His Majesty could not have given me a more disagreeable task. You doubtless think I am in favor of this marriage, but I am not. This was as great a lie as ever fell whole out of a bishop's mouth. I have been obliged to fall in with the king's views on the matter, for he has had his mind set on it from the first mention by de Longueville. "'Was it that beady-eyed little mummy who suggested it?' "'Yes, and if you marry the King of France, you can repay him with usury.' "'Tis an inducement, by my troth. "'I do not mind saying to you in confidence "'that I think it an outrage to force a girl like you "'to marry a man like Louis of France. "'But how are we to avoid it?' By the we, Wolsey put himself in alliance with Mary, and the move was certainly adroit. How are we to avoid it? Have no fear of that, my lord. I will show you. Oh, but, my dear princess, permit me. You do not seem to know your brother. You cannot in any way avoid this marriage. I believe he will imprison you and put you on bread and water to force your consent. 
I am sure you had better do willingly that which you will eventually be compelled to do anyway. And besides, there is another thought that has come to me. Shall I speak plainly before Lady Jane Bolingbroke? I have no secrets from her. Very well, it is this. Louis is old and feeble. He cannot live long. And it may be that you can, by a ready consent now, exact a promise from your brother to allow you your own choice in the event of a second marriage. You might in that way purchase what you could not bring about in any other way. How do you know that I want to purchase aught in any way, Master Wolsey? I most certainly do not intend to do so by marrying France. I do not know that you wish to purchase anything, but a woman's heart is not always under her full control, and it sometimes goes out to one very far beneath her in station. But the equal of any man on earth in grandeur of soul and nobleness of nature. It might be that there is such a man whom any woman would be amply justified in purchasing at any sacrifice. Doubly so if it were buying happiness for two. His meaning was too plain even to pretend to misunderstand, and Mary's eyes flashed at him as her face broke into a dimpling smile in spite of her. Wolsey thought he had won, and to clinch the victory said in his forceful manner, Louis the Twelfth will not live a year. Let me carry to the king your consent, and I guarantee you his promise as to a second marriage. In an instant Mary's eyes shot fire, and her face was like the blackest storm-cloud. Carry this to the king, that I will see him and the whole kingdom sunk in hell before I will marry Louis of France. That is my answer once and for all. Good evening, Master Wolsey. And she swept out of the room with head up and dilating nostrils, the very picture of defiance. St. George, she must have looked superb. She was one of the few persons whom anger and disdain, and the other passions which we call ungentle, seemed to illumine. They were so strong in her, and yet not violent. It seemed that every deep emotion but added to her beauty and brought it out, as the light within a church brings out the exquisite figuring on the windows. After Wolsey had gone, Jane said to Mary, "'Don't you think it would have been better had you sent a softer answer to your brother? I believe you could reach his heart even now, if you were to make the effort. You have not tried in this matter as you did in the others.' "'Perhaps you are right, Jane. I will go to Henry.' Mary waited until she knew the king was alone, and then went to him. On entering the room, she said, "'Brother, I sent a hasty message to you by the Bishop of Lincoln this morning, and have come to ask your forgiveness.' "'Ah, little sister, I thought you would change your mind. Now you are a good girl.' "'Oh, do not misunderstand me. I asked your forgiveness for the message.' As to the marriage, I came to tell you that it would kill me and that I could not bear it. 
oh brother you are not a woman you cannot know henry flew into a passion and with oaths and curses ordered her to leave him unless she was ready to give her consent she had but two courses to take so she left with her heart full of hatred for the most brutal wretch who ever sat upon a throne and that is making an extreme case as she was going she turned upon him like a fury and exclaimed never never do you hear never preparations went on for the marriage just as if mary had given her solemn consent the important work of providing the trousseau began at once and the more important matter of securing the loan from the london merchants was pushed along rapidly the good citizens might cling affectionately to their angels double angels crowns and pounds sterling but the fear in which they held the king and a little patting of the royal hand upon the plebeian head worked the charm and out came the yellow gold never to be seen again god wot under the stimulus of the royal smile they were ready to shout themselves hoarse and to eat and drink themselves red in the face in celebration of the wedding day in short they were ready to be tickled nearly to death for the honour of paying to a wretched old lecher a wagon-load of gold to accept as a gracious gift the most beautiful heart-broken girl in the world that is she would have been heart-broken had she not been inspired with courage as it was she wasted none of her energy in lamentations but saved it all to fight with heavens how she did fight if a valiant defence ever deserved victory it was in her case when the queen went to her with silks and taffetas and fine cloths to consult about the trousseau although the theme was one which would interest almost any woman she would have none of it and when catherine insisted upon her trying on a certain gown she called her a blackamoor tore the garment to pieces and ordered her to leave the room henry sent wolsey to tell her that the thirteenth day of august had been fixed upon as the day of the marriage de longueville to act as the french king's proxy and wolsey was glad to come off with his life matters were getting into a pretty tangle at the palace mary would not speak to the king and poor catherine was afraid to come within arm's length of her wolsey was glad to keep out of her way and she flew at buckingham with talons and beak upon first sight as to the battle with buckingham it was short but decisive and this was the way it came about there had been a passage between the duke and brandon in which the latter had tried to coax the former into a duel the only way of course to settle the weighty matters between them buckingham however had had a taste of brandon's nimble sword-play and bearing in mind judson's fate did not care for any more they had met by accident and brandon full of smiles and polite as a frenchman greeted him doubtless my lord having crossed swords twice with me will do me the great honour to grant that privilege the third time and will kindly tell me where my friend can wait upon a friend of his grace 
"'There is no need for us to meet over that little affair. "'You had the best of it, and if I am satisfied, you should be. "'I was really in the wrong, "'but I did not know the princess had invited you to her ball.' "'Your lordship is pleased to evade,' returned Brandon. "'It is not the ballroom matter that I have to complain of. "'As you have rightly said, if you are satisfied, I certainly should be. "'But it is that your lordship, in the name of the king, "'instructed the keeper of Newgate Prison to confine me in an underground cell "'and prohibited communication with any of my friends.' you so arranged it that my trial should be secret both as to the day thereof and the event in order that it should not be known to those who might be interested in my release you promised the lady mary that you would procure my liberty and thereby prevented her going to the king for that purpose and afterwards told her that it had all been done as promised and that i had escaped to new spain it is because of this my lord buckingham that i now denounce you as a liar a coward and a perjured knight and demand of you such satisfaction as one man can give to another for mortal injury if you refuse i will kill you as i would a cutthroat the next time i meet you i care nothing for your rant fellow but out of considerations for the feelings which your fancied injuries have put into your heart, I tell you that I did what I could to liberate you, and received from the keeper a promise that you should be allowed to escape. After that a certain letter addressed to you was discovered and fell into the hands of the king, a matter in which I had no part. As to your confinement and non-communication with your friends, that was at his majesty's command after he had seen the letter as he will most certainly confirm to you i say this for my own sake not that i care what you may say or think this offer of confirmation by the king made it all sound like the truth so much will even a little truth leaven a great lie and part of brandon's sails came down against the mast the whole statement surprised him, and most of all the intercepted letter. What letter could it have been? It was puzzling, and yet he dared not ask. As the Duke was about to walk away, Brandon stopped him. One moment, Your Grace. I am willing to admit what you have said, for I am not now prepared to contradict it. But there is yet another matter we have to settle. You attacked me on horseback, and tried to murder me in order to abduct two ladies that night over in Billingsgate. That you cannot deny. I watched you follow the ladies from Bridewell to Grouches, and saw your face when your mask fell off during the melee, as plainly as I see it now. If other proof is wanting, there is that sprained knee upon which your horse fell, causing you to limp even yet. I am sure now that my lord will meet me like a man, or would he prefer that I should go to the king and tell him and the world the whole shameful story? I have concealed it heretofore, thinking it my personal right and privilege to settle with you. 
Buckingham turned a shade paler as he replied, "'I do not meet such as you on the field of honour, and have no fear of your slander injuring me.' He felt secure in the thought that the girls did not know who had attacked them, and could not corroborate Brandon in his accusation, or Mary surely never would have appealed to him for help. I was with Brandon, at a little distance, that is, when this occurred, and after Buckingham had left, we went to find the girls in the forest. We knew they would be looking for us, although they would pretend surprise when they saw us. We soon met them, and the very leaves of the trees gave a soft, contented rustle in response to Mary's low, mellow laugh of joy. After perhaps half an hour, we encountered Buckingham with his lawyer knight, Johnson. They had evidently walked out to this quiet path to consult about the situation. As they approached, Mary spoke to the Duke, with a vicious sparkle in her eyes. "'My Lord Buckingham, this shall cost you your head. Remember my words when you are on the scaffold just when your neck fits into the hollow of the block. He stopped with an evident desire to explain, but Mary pointed down the path and said, Go, or I will have Master Brandon spit you on his sword. Two to one would be easy odds compared with the four to one you put against him in Billingsgate. Go. And the battle was over, the foe never having struck a blow. It hurt me that Mary should speak of the odds being two to one against Brandon when I was at hand. It is true I was not very large, but I could have taken care of the lawyer. Now it was that the lawyer knight earned his bread by his wits, for it was he, I know, who instigated the next move, a master stroke in its way, and one which proved a checkmate to us. It was this. The duke went at once to the king, and in a tone of injured innocence, told him of the charge made by Brandon with Mary's evident approval, and demanded redress for the slander. Thus it seemed that the strength of our position was about to be turned against us. Brandon was at once summoned and promptly appeared before the king, only too anxious to confront the duke. As to the confinement of Brandon and his secret trial, the king did not care to hear. That was a matter of no consequence to him. The important question was, did Buckingham attack the princess? Brandon told the whole straight story exactly as it was, which Buckingham as promptly denied, and offered to prove by his almoner that he was at his devotions on the night and at the hour of the attack. So here was a conflict of evidence which called for new witnesses, and Henry asked Brandon if the girls had seen and recognized the Duke. To this question, of course, he was compelled to answer no, and the whole accusation, after all, rested upon Brandon's word, against which, on the other hand, was the evidence of the Duke of Buckingham and his convenient almoner all this disclosed to the full poor Mary's anxiety to help Brandon, and the Duke having adroitly let out the fact that he had just met the princess with Brandon at a certain secluded spot in the forest, Henry's suspicion of her partiality received new force, 
and he began to look upon the unfortunate Brandon as a partial cause, at least, of Mary's aversion to the French marriage. Henry grew angry, and ordered Brandon to leave the court, with the solemn remark that it was only his services to the Princess Mary that saved him from a day with papers on the pillory. This was not by any means what Brandon had expected. There seemed to be a fatality for him about everything connected with that unfortunate trip to Grouche's. He had done his duty, and this was his recompense. Virtue is sometimes a pitiful reward for itself, notwithstanding much wisdom to the contrary. Henry was by no means sure that his suspicions concerning Mary's heart were correct, and in all he had heard he had not one substantial fact upon which to base conviction. He had not seen her with Brandon since their avowal, or he would have had a fact in every look, the truth in every motion, a demonstration in every glance. She seemed powerless even to attempt concealment. In Brandon's handsome manliness and evident superiority, the king thought he saw a very clear possibility for Mary to love, and where there is such a possibility for a girl, she usually fails to fulfill expectations. I suppose there are more wrong guesses as to the sort of man a given woman will fall in love with than on any other subject of equal importance in the whole range of human surmising. It did not, however, strike the king that way, and he, in common with most other sons of Adam, supposing that he knew all about it, marked Brandon as a very possible and troublesome personage. For once in the history of the world, a man had hit upon the truth in this obscure matter, although he had no idea how correct he was. Now all this brought Brandon into the deep shadow of the royal frown, and, like many another man, he sank his fortune in the fathomless depths of a woman's heart, and thought himself rich in doing it. End of chapter 13 Recording by M. J. Frank, Portland, Oregon